Merry Christmas. Well, we believe that the fact that God's Son came into the world is worth celebrating, especially when you look in Scripture at the reasons for why He came into the world. Um, And it's a joy for me to have Christmas coincide with the Lord's Day so that we're able to worship together as a church family on a Christmas day. And our Christmas series this year has been focusing on why Jesus came into the world and what He Himself said about His own coming. The baby in the manger grew up to be a man, and as a man in the gospel accounts, there are multiple occasions where Jesus tells people the reasons that He came into the world. And so that's what we've been looking at this year for our Christmas series. And today, we're going to look at actually a couple of reasons Jesus came into the world, but it's going to be a little bit different today. Uh, We're not looking at a passage where Jesus Himself says why He came into the world. We're going to look at a passage where the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle John to tell us why Jesus came into the world. So please turn in your Bible over to 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. And uh, before I read the passage, I do want to do just a little quick survey of the congregation here. By a show of hands, how many, how many of you still have gifts that haven't been opened? Okay, all right. So, I think we anticipate only a few. There's only a few. Now, there's, there are some really good reasons to have gifts that still haven't been opened at this point on a Christmas day. Maybe you're intending to open them with the family members who gave them to you, and you're not able to get together till Sunday evening or Monday because of, you know, each side of the family and all of that. There are some good reasons, but I think most of us, when I asked that question, probably anticipated that response, that most people in the congregation weren't going to raise their hands, because in most of our households, there's no gifts left unopened by noon on Christmas Day, because of the excitement that parents and children have over giving and receiving gifts. Gifts are meant to be received and opened and enjoyed and used. Uh, That's just self-evident to us. And at Christmas, we celebrate the greatest gift from the greatest gift giver. God the Father is the greatest giver of gifts. And in John 3.16, we read that uh, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God the Father gave the gift of His Son to us when Jesus came and was born of a virgin. And God's Son, Jesus, is the greatest gift of all. He came into the world to fulfill uh, the Old Testament. Uh, He came into the world to call sinners to the repentance that leads to forgiveness and eternal life. He came into the world to serve all of us and give His life as a ransom for sinners. And John tells us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that He also came into the world to take away sins. Uh, Let's read what John says together about that in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 and following. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared 
was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born by God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. It's been my habit here at Grace Fellowship Church uh, to preach from the New American Standard Translation of the Bible, but today I'm preaching from the ESV, the English Standard Version, and uh, I'll explain why I'm doing that as we get deeper into the passage. But before I explain the passage, let me sort of uh, let you in on how I picture this passage, what, what images it conjures up in my mind's eye. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in which uh, four uh, two brothers and two sisters are caught up into this land called Narnia. Uh, at the time, the land of Narnia is under the spell of a Satan figure called the White Witch, and she's cast a spell on Narnia that makes it always winter, but never Christmas. Um, and uh, the, the Christ figure in the story, a lion named Aslan, comes into Narnia to break the spell and set uh, Narnia free, but the process isn't overnight or one and done. There are characters who have to choose whose side they're going to be on. There are armies that need to be gathered. There are uh, prisoners that need to be rescued. There are intrigues and betrayals and battles to be fought. And in their hour of greatest need, uh, the children are visited by Father Christmas. Aslan's broken the spell, and so Father Christmas can come into Narnia, and Father Christmas shows up and gives the children gifts. Peter receives a sword, Susan a bow, Lucy receives a cordial that can heal mortal wounds and reverse spells that the witch puts on people. And these gifts are not meant to sit on a shelf and gather dust. They're meant to be received with thankfulness, valued, uh, and actually used in the war against the white witch. Well, in the same way, the Father has given us gifts through the Son, which, we're meant, which are meant to be used by us in the long war against the dark lord Satan. And, uh, and that's what this passage in 1 John is really about. Jesus came into the world to take away sins and destroy the works of the devil, and He calls us to follow Him by engaging in this battle He's waging. And the main point of the passage we come to this afternoon is that as Chris, Christians, we receive the gift of Christ we enjoy Him, and then we use the gifts He's given us to fight against sin. We fight against sin because of what it is, verses 4 through 6 in the passage, and we fight against sin because of where it's from, verses 7 through 10. That'll be our outline. And as we fight against our sin, we enter into this battle with hope because the spell, the enchantment of the enemy has been broken. Winter is gone. Uh, the guilt has been forgiven. But the enemy is still in the land with a functional army, and so there are battles to be fought. Uh, and that's the spiritual context here in 1 John where John says, verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Uh, the problem with lawlessness is not just that it breaks God's law. I think that's evident to all of us when we, when we read that. Uh, the Greek word for lawlessness here is anomia. And the problem with lawlessness is not just that it breaks God, God's law, it's also that it denies 
the right of God to give us laws. It denies His ownership over us. It's not just that lawlessness is law-breaking. It's that lawlessness is also a kind of law-making. In it, I reject God's right to set up a law, and I set up a competing law of my own in opposition to Him. And so, the idea of lawlessness here in 1 John, it really conveys the ultimate sense of rebellion. Lawlessness writes its own rules and lives according to its own strength and its own laws in defiance of the Creator. Now, when you think about it, a lawless person can be very polite. They can still agree with many of God's moral laws, but in the end, they refuse to bow the knee to God as the Creator and as the lawgiver and the one to whom they owe their obedience. And so, lawlessness is not so much a moral weakness in this passage. Lawlessness uh, is not just a, a particular temptation to sin. It's an oppositional defiance disorder against the God who made us. And John says, everyone who practices sinning, everybody who makes a practice of this is guilty of lawlessness. Now, when he uses that phrase that we bring over into English, it's makes a practice of. It's our English way of translating a present active participle in Greek that gives the idea of an ongoing, continuous, unbroken, habitual pattern of sin. We might call it, and this is where I think it would make it a lot clearer, we might call it unrepentant sin. And the reason I'm using the English Standard Version today is because I believe it does a better job of bringing that continuous, unrepentant sense of sin over into English better than the New American Standard. A person can claim to follow Jesus, but if by their actions they live in continuous, unconfessed, unrepentant patterns of sin, if their lives are completely indistinguishable from the non-Christian world around them, then they show that they actually don't know God. John goes on to say, verse 5, you know that He, speaking about Jesus, who he mentions earlier in the passage, you know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. So, God's Son came into the world and dwelled among us, and part of the reason He came was to take away sins. That was one of His motives. That was one of His missions in the world. Now, if you just stop and think about this in light of the sermon series we've been doing, this is a marvelous truth. Jesus came into the world not only to give His life as a ransom that would pay the penalty of our sins. We looked at that last night on the Christmas Eve service. Uh, He also came to break the power or enchantment or spell of sin. Um, uh, We could say it this way. He came to bring us forgiveness, yes, but He also came to give us the grace of transformation so that we could overcome our sins. But that doesn't go far enough doing justice to what John is talking about here. The idea in Greek of taking away sins is bringing about a situation in which sin is completely eradicated from our lives. Uh, And when you think about it, in the new heaven and new earth, there will be no more sin and there will be no more temptation to sin. So, Christ came into the world not just to save us from the penalty of our sins, He also came to break the power of sin in our lives and start a process that will eventually end in us never sinning again for all of eternity future. He came to completely eradicate sin. Now, that Jesus came to destroy sin gives us hope 
in our own fight against sin, right? At salvation, we experienced a real cleansing, a real separation from sin, which on a practical level continues to work in our lives so that we become more and more conformed to Christ. In Titus chapter 2, Paul is talking about this uh, to Titus, uh, writing about it to Titus, and he summarizes both our future victory over sin and the present battle we find ourselves in with these words. This is Titus 2.11 and following. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. So in the present, God's grace teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldliness. And when Christ appears again, our purification from all lawlessness will be complete. So I think Titus 2 really is like a parallel passage to what John is saying here. John teaches that Christ came into the world to completely eradicate sin and destroy it. Paul says to Titus that Christ's mission is to redeem people from all their lawlessness and to purify them. And so if Christ's mission is to completely eradicate sin in the lives of His followers, but some of His followers choose to get cozy with their pet sins, or uh, there's a certain group of people out there who claim to know Jesus, uh, but they make a practice of sinning. If that's what's going on, can you understand how John might have some really strong words to say about that, right? It's working against the mission Christ had in coming. Well, that's actually what's going to happen in the very next verse. In the very next verse, John comes out swinging. He gives us in boxing the one-two, because uh, he sees this happening in the churches, and it's of great concern to him. And so he says, verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. To continue living in unrepentant sin uh, runs completely contrary to what Christ is doing and working to accomplish. Living in unconfessed, unrepentant sin runs contrary to Christ's purpose for you. So if you justify your sin and you argue for your right to indulge in it and you keep on living in it, you're living at cross purposes to what Christ is trying to do in your life. Maybe you could think about it this way. Imagine that you're watching a spy movie for the very first time. So you don't, you don't know the plot. You don't know what, the, what twists and turns are going to happen. You don't know how it's going to end. And you're watching this movie, and the sidekick to the main character just keeps throwing a wrench in uh, the protagonist's plans. It's a spy movie. What exactly are you going to think? You're going to start wondering if maybe this sidekick is actually a double agent, right? You're going to be wondering, well, whose side is he on if he's not helpful to what we're trying to accomplish? Well, to follow Christ but to still treasure sin, it's like a man keeping and treasuring the blood-stained dagger that killed his best friend. We can't go on living in sin when Christ died to save us from it. Spurgeon said it this way, if Christ has died for me, then I cannot trifle with the sin which killed my best friend. Anyone who truly abides in Christ will learn to hate sin like Christ does, and uh, starting with the sin that's in their own life. If Christ's mission was to take away sin, 
You can't abide in it and keep on loving sin in an unconfessed, unrepentant way. And notice what John says at the end of verse 6. No one who keeps on sinning has, past tense, has either seen him or known him. So in this case, John's diagnosis is that if this is the case in a person's life, salvation has never taken place. If the person has come to know Christ and has abided in Him for any length of time, then they won't keep living comfortably with their sins. So in John's mind, what's impossible in the Christian life is for just an unchanged, continuous, unbroken pattern of sin. Now, I want to stop here and say something very important about verse 6. There's an important, important clarification we need to make here. At first read in English, verse 6 can look as if John is teaching that if you're a Christian, you won't sin anymore, and so the implication is if you still sin, you're not a Christian. And uh, it can be a very troubling verse if not interpreted properly, right? Now, we know that that is not what John is teaching, that if you still sin, you must not be a Christian. Because John has taught earlier in this letter that Christians still fall into sin. He said it this way in 1 John 1.8, if we say we have, present tense, no more sin, we're only deceiving ourselves and the truth isn't in us. The New Testament teaches that Christians, genuine Christians, still fall into sin. There is no state of sinless perfection that we can achieve on this side of eternity. But the Christian will have a moral track record of sinning less and less and becoming more and more obedient to the commands of Christ over time. That'll be the trend in their, life, in their lives. Back in chapter 2 of this letter, John said this, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So John's goal in writing the letter is to help us stop sinning. But then he also adds this, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, when John says, but if anyone sins, in Greek grammar, he constructs it in such a way that it's a third-class uh, conditional statement. And what that means, don't let your eyes glaze over because I'm giving you grammar. Uh, what that means, in Greek, it's a way of constructing a phrase that lets people know there is a real strong possibility that this is gonna, that the if statement is going to happen. So maybe if we wanted to bring over the nuance of it into English, we could say it this way. If anyone sins, and it'll happen, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, this is good news. It means that when we fall back into sin, we're not left on our own, uh, to our own devices, right? We're not left on our own to try and effect a reconciliation with God. We have a defense attorney. We have a conciliator with the Father named Jesus. And so it's clear from John's earlier statements in this letter, he knows Christians are going to fall into sin. In fact, he even teaches chapter 1, verse 8, that if anyone thinks they've reached a state of sinless perfection in this life, they're only kidding themselves. And so in light of that, we shouldn't take what John says in chapter 3, verse 6, to mean that true Christians don't ever fall back into sin. That's not the point. But we should understand verse 6 to mean that Christians don't go on living in unrepentant, unconfessed sin without any kind of inner conflict and inner turmoil over the way that they're living, without any kind of confession in prayer, without any kind of desire to turn from it and be rid of these 
pestilential desires that cause me to find attractive things that are ugly and polluted. Now, I will admit at this point that I have spent a disproportionate amount of time on verses 4 through 6. But the reason I did it is because if you understand them, the rest of the passage is very, very easy to understand. In verse 7, John says, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So, in other words, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by false teachers who say that you can just keep living however you want, regardless of what Jesus commands, and still have a good relationship with Him. Uh, Don't let people, he says earlier in the letter, don't let people tell you that uh, you don't have to walk in the light of God's truth to to actually know God, right? Um, We receive the gift of Jesus, and we use the gift of His grace to fight against sin because of what sin is. It's a kind of lawlessness that we want to turn from. It's a rebellion that's damning to the soul, but even after we've been saved, uh, living in it causes our joy to be destroyed and our closeness with God uh, to be interrupted, and it invites God's discipline. And so, because of what sin is, as Christians, we want to turn from it. Um, We fight against sin because of what it is, but we also fight against sin because of where it's from. Look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Here's yet another reason that Jesus came into the world. He came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. Now, what are the works of the devil? Well, we know from other passages in Scripture that the devil came to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus comes to heal and give life. Uh, And by his teaching, he teaches what leads to human flourishing. We also know that the devil is a deceiver, but Jesus brings the light of truth into the world. But I don't think those sorts of things are the, the primary works of the devil that John is dealing with here. I think the main point here is that the devil is a sinner in rebellion to God, and the primary way he destroys others is by enticing them to sin and rebel as well. And when Jesus came, His mission was to do away with all of that, to defeat what Satan entices people to, and to eradicate sin forever. And there's a great contrast here between Christ, who came into the world, and Satan. Back in verse 5, John ended the verse by saying, and in Him, in Jesus, there is no sin. So, Jesus never sinned. He's not tempted by sin. He doesn't tempt others to sin. By contrast, the devil lives in open rebellion to God and tempts others to live that way as well. And all the individuals who choose to live in unrepentant sin, they may not be aware of it, right? They're not consciously aware of it. They don't, they don't understand. But the fact is, by their choice, they are choosing to be in league with the devil in the cosmic battle that's going on in the spiritual realm. Uh, St. Augustine explained it this way, "'The devil made no man, begat no man, created no man, but whoso imitates the devil, that person, as if begotten by him, becomes a child of the devil by imitating him, not literally by being begotten of him.'" I think that's a great explanation. John is saying here there's two spiritual families, the family of God and the family of the devil, and you reveal whose family you're in by who you imitate. And then next, John says something that sounds very similar to verse 6. Verse 9, he says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. 
Here in verse 9, there is something we need to come to grips with, and that is that when a man or woman uh, lives in sin without any conviction, without any inner turmoil, without any repentance, without any confession, uh, without any cleansing, they revealing that they reveal that they're not true Christians. And I would add with sorrow that I believe it's been uh, one, of the, one of the reasons we're in some of the trouble we're in uh, in our current situation in the church is because of the unwillingness of Protestant evangelical Christianity, of which I consider myself to be a part, uh, to face up to the truth of this verse. And it's led us to believe that there's millions of American Christians who know Jesus as Savior, they just don't know Him as Lord yet. But that kind of thinking is pure foolishness, especially in light of the fact that repentance is a key aspect of salvation. Right now, there are millions of Americans who've been told by the church that they can have Jesus as Savior, but they don't have to bow the knee to Him as Lord. And the result has been that they live lives no different than the rest of the world, and then you know what they do? They participate in Barna surveys, and the results make it look like there's no difference between Christians and the people who live in the world. And to that we need to say, as John does, verse 10, by this it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So the true children of God practice righteousness. The true children of God love their brothers and sisters, which is a, another theme John camps out on in this letter. And the true children of God fight with Jesus, alongside of Jesus, against their sin and against the work of the devil that Jesus came into the world to defeat. And so when you take this passage as a whole, you have to say, we've been given a remarkable gift in Jesus. His grace brought into the world a ransom from the penalty of our sin, but it also set in motion a process of completely eradicating sin from your life and from mine. He came so that if we fall back into sin, we can also have an advocate with the Father who will remove the Father's just anger against our sin. And so when you put all of these truths together in harmony and look at this reason why Jesus came into the world, uh, what should we say that this gift of Jesus means for us? Well, I have three applications. The first is this. It gives us a clear goal and purpose in living. We understand that we were created to glorify God, and one of the ways we do that is by putting away our sin and living in obedience to His commands. And we do that first and foremost for ourselves, but then also to model that to people around us who know that we're Christians and to influence others to do the same. And so, you have a clear purpose and goal for living this next week, and it is to cease from sinning and to obey Christ and to lead others and encourage others to do the same by your example. And if you'll be involved in that cosmic spiritual battle, and if you'll make progress, you won't have wasted your time. The second thing that the gift of Jesus gives us is hope that when we fail, our failures will be forgiven. Think about it this way. If you had no hope that your failures could be forgiven, you might start off with a good resolution to cease from sinning, but what would happen the first time you fall into sin? 
you'd be discouraged because, well, what's the point? Why should I keep trying? I've fallen back into sin, and there's no hope for me now. And so the hope that we have of having this advocate with the Father, it helps us engage in the battle with hope so that even when we fail, there's a game plan. We confess it for what it is. We go to the throne of grace in prayer and confession, and we receive mercy as Christ intercedes for us with God the Father. And then the third thing that the gift of Jesus gives us is the hope that He will help us in our battle. If you hate your sin and want to overcome it, Jesus is on your side. He didn't come to destroy sin because sin is fulfilling and enjoyable and life-giving. He came to destroy sin because it's fatal. It promises life, but it delivers death. It's enslaving, and it will destroy you if you don't fight it. And Jesus came to help you in your fight. He's there to aid you as part of His larger plan to eradicate and take away all sins. Jesus is the greatest gift of all. He is for all who confess their sins, not against them. He is good and good for you, and He will aid you in your battle against indwelling sin. Let's pray.